G'day. This is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. I'm Glenn Davis, and in this episode, we ask, are governments becoming too large? If we vote to leave the EU, we will not be voting to leave Europe. Of all the arguments that they make, this is the one that infuriates me the most in a hotly contested field. I am, I am a child of Europe. I am, as I say, a liberal cosmopolitan. My family is a genetically equivalent of a UN peacekeeping force. I can read novels in French. I think I've even read a novel in Spanish. I can sing the ode to joy in German. I will. Well, if you keep, I, if you keep accusing me of being a little ignorant, I will. Freude, schöne Anyway, you know it. You know it. And that, of course, is Boris Johnson, a former mayor of London and an outspoken supporter of Brexit or British exit from the European Union and not, as he insists, a little Englander. So why is this self-proclaimed child of Europe saying it's time for the UK to leave the EU? Well, most of the commentary has been about migration issues. But there is another theme that runs through the arguments, and that's the role and size and reach of government, our topic today. To put it simply, Boris argues that EU regulation is out of control and holding back the United Kingdom. He says that when there are rules that tell farmers what shape their bananas have to be, things have gone too far. So the EU referendum could be characterised as a vote for or against big government. Big government in the form of another layer of rules and regulations that overlay those of national governments. And it's this question of big government we're keen to discuss. Are governments becoming too large, not just in Europe, but in Australia as well? A topic I look forward to discussing with two wonderful guests. Philomena Murray is Professor in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne and Director of the Research Unit on Regional Governance in the EU Centre on Shared Complex Challenges. And today, she's on Skype from Dublin. Welcome, Philomena. Thank you, Glenn. And with me in the studio is Professor John Daly, CEO of the Grattan Institute and one of Australia's leading policy thinkers. Great to have you with us, John. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about the EU referendum, but let's start with this small versus big government debate. John, why is the size of government important? For a couple of reasons. Uh, one of the ways of thinking about size of government is how much of all of our activity is ultimately produced by government rather than by private sector. Typically, uh, the private sector will produce things more efficiently. Typically, what it produces will be closer to what people would prefer. Uh, and so typically, the size of your economy will be larger if government is smaller. And when your economy is larger, what you are effectively saying is there are more resources across the community to go around for whatever it is that we want to, to have. So that's the kind of economic way of thinking about it. And then there's a libertarian way of thinking about it. One that says there is a value uh, in making our own decisions. There is a value uh, in leading our lives the way that we personally choose to live them. Uh, and when government makes regulations about everything, including the shape of bananas, uh, we make fewer choices for ourselves. We have less autonomy uh, and therefore that too is a problem. 
So those are the two ways that this size of government tends to get played out. Firstly, just the sheer weight of the economy that government consumes, the sheer weight of resources. And then secondly, the level of intrusion, particularly into everyday lives. Philomena, how does this argument play out in Europe? Um, I think both of them are relevant in the European context and not only for the British. Um, The European Union is not big government in terms of the size of its bureaucracies. In fact, its main bureaucracy, the European Commission, is smaller than the Belgian Ministry for Finance or the French Ministry for Culture. The issue is rather the perception of over-regulation. The libertarian argument was evident when you saw the deregulation of many trade barriers, for example, in the creation of the European Union's single market for goods, services, finance, etc. But what you saw then was a European Union regulation, um, which was really quite detailed. And the European Union has moved a bit away from that towards framework legislation instead. But there really is still that perception that the size of bananas and how many cucumbers you put into a box um, is really what characterizes the European Union. So in many ways, it's gone from deregulation to regulation to something that could be called pre-regulation, legislating for what might happen. And I think that particularly is very difficult for countries such as Britain and those who have been influenced by Britain, such as Australia and indeed Ireland, where I am at the moment. So it is really very much a different view of society, regulation and personal choice as well. So what is an acceptable size of government from a European perspective? From the European perspective, if you're a European bureaucrat, um, it means that you have framework legislation, which is then applied in each of the 28 countries. Now, interestingly, Britain is superb at implementing EU legislation. Italy and Greece have always had problems with this, but the British are top of the euro goodies when it comes to implementing legislation. Um, So the European Union perspective would be, we have to regulate just in case there are challenges. And so that's that pre-regulation aspect, which I think means that there's regardless of what sort of government there is in Brussels, and indeed it's governance, not government, um, really they feel that there has to be almost this caring oversight, which again is very much something that, that Boris Johnson would oppose. So John, how do European nations compare with Australia when we're thinking about the role of government in society and indeed just the sheer scale of government? Well, just in the sheer scale of government, typically European governments are much larger than Australian governments. So there are lots of European governments where government spending is around about 50% of GDP. In other words, one in every $2 that is spent in the country uh, is ultimately spent by government rather than by individuals. Now, if we compare that to Australia, which is more like about 35%. In other words, in Australia, about one in every $3 is spent by government and two in three are spent by individuals. So our government is quite a lot smaller relative to the economy. But there's a debate, isn't there, about the precise measure? Because what do you count in? Does superannuation count in, for example? That's absolutely right. And if you count compulsory superannuation payments, then the size of government in Australia is more like about 40-odd percent of GDP. Uh, and that's a reasonable thing to do uh, in because 
lots of European countries have social security contributions. Uh, people who make those social security contributions are then entitled to get pensions. And so they work somewhat analogously to superannuation. Now, of course, there are material differences, the most important of which perhaps is superannuation really is your money in the way that a social security contribution is not. And you can tell that because when you die, uh, your superannuation, whatever's left, gets passed on to whoever you nominate. Whereas when you die in Europe and you've only been retired for a couple of years, uh, you don't get to pass on some big lump sum of all of the pension you never claimed. It's an important difference. So why do we not hear the debates in Australia that we hear in the United States about the size of government, given that even at 40%, the Australian size of the Australian state is roughly the same as the United States. I think you do increasingly see those debates in Australia. Uh, many of the right-wing think tanks have been running full-blown campaigns about the size of government. It's now a, a, a meme that you see quite a lot uh, in the media. But I think it's much less of a big deal in Australia. And the reason it's less of a big deal is that Australia has always seen government as an important part of society. If you go all the way back to the founding of Australia, This was a government state. Without the government, people who were here would have starved uh, when they arrived (laughs) back in the uh, 1780s. Um, Contrast that with the United States, where the early... Uh, earliest settlers from Europe, obviously not the earliest settlers overall, but the earliest settlers from Europe were by and large persecuted religious minorities who were running away from governments and who were therefore very sure that they wanted to be allowed to govern themselves as much as possible. And you see that reflected in any number of government structures in Australia as opposed to the United States, where there is in the United States this quite significant distrust of government, deliberate attempts to make government in many ways as weak and as ineffectual as possible uh, compared to Australia, where I I think there's always been much more of an ideology that government is there ultimately to support people, to coordinate, to do things, and we're happy to support it when it does that, so long as it doesn't go too far. Mm. Philomena, how does this argument run in the United Kingdom? Well, I think that it's interesting that um, John has said that without the government, uh, many in Australia would have starved, you know, at the init- in those initial stages. I think the argument in the European Union has always been without the European Union, the nation states would still be at war. So because the European Union is a peace community as much as it is an economic community, um, that is its justification of needing rules and regulation to keep the countries working together. And that was that's still very much part of the peace narrative of the European Union even though it has little resonance in many EU countries. The country where it has least resonance of all, however, is the United Kingdom, where it is regarded as an economic bloc, which is very useful for the UK. The UK has always been in favour of trade liberalisation. It's always been in favour of this single market, creating the greatest economic unit, economic bloc in the world. This is something that Thatcher saw as value. She never, for instance, as Prime Minister, said we must leave the UK she's the European Union I beg your pardon but she said we must leave Thatcher said we must leave the political aspects of 
the European Union to one side. So there has always been a recognition that a certain amount of big governance relating to market rules is desired as long as it is related to deregulation. So there is a slight difference there, I think, yeah. um, with the Australian case. So back in 2010, David Cameron ran on the slogan, big society, not big government. Yep. And yet his conservative government supports staying in the EU. How does the being a supporter of small government mesh with also supporting involvement with Europe? I think Cameron has a lot of good points to make about the need to have a big society and a small government. I think the European Union has added an extra layer of governance um, to all of the 28 countries. Um, what he doesn't perhaps understand quite as well is that they actually have shared powers now. So, for instance, if the um, result of the referendum is a Brexit, that there is an exit from the European Union, it will have to then renegotiate all those parts of policy that it has handed over to the European Union, whether on agriculture or on trade negotiations, for example. So the societal aspect that he has been emphasising is to try to reinstill a sense of British identity, which can still remain within the European Union. This has not played out well. It has not played out well in his own party, and neither has it played out well within Britain, and particularly in the Murdoch-influenced press. So if Brexit happens, will Britain have to create some new governance institutions, or will it revert and be able to uh, simply take out the EU influence on its legislation? It's going to be very difficult to take out the EU influence in its legislation. What the legal experts in the UK in particular are saying is that, um, that most of the EU legislation would actually remain and would simply be called British legislation, that it is simply too difficult to disentangle it. Where the challenge um, is going to come up is in the negotiation of trade relations, particularly with... Um, uh, those countries that, it's, for instance, the European Union is negotiating with at the moment. Like at the moment, discussions are advancing extremely well on an EU free trade agreement with Australia. This would not include the UK, so it would have to try to negotiate a parallel one. It could take up to seven years, however, for the EU to actually negotiate the UK's extricating itself from the European Union. John Daly, you've written recently that the size of government is essentially a value choice. So who makes these choices and are there recognisable patterns in the way Australia has behaved? Well, ultimately, uh, it's the core value choice that our parliamentarians and our governments make uh, because the size of government, both in terms of how far it reaches into our lives, and that, that's obviously a question of legislation, and then the size of government in terms of how much government taxes and then spends is a core choice of government. And if you mm. think about what, what flows into that choice, it's, it's a combination of things. It's firstly, how much do we want government to uh, support services of various kinds, health, education, uh, emergency services, defence, mm -hmm. and so on? Second, how much do we want government to essentially tax one group of people and then provide welfare benefits to another group of people uh, because one way or another we're trying to uh, promote some notion of fairness and some notion of distribution, uh, one way or another look after people who are um, getting less of the income from market forces. And those two things essentially determine how much government spends and therefore hopefully uh, determines how much government raises. Now, of course, there's a trade-off. Uh, if you provide more services, if you 
do more redistribution, then by definition, government will be a bit larger. uh, And therefore, by definition, chances are the economy will be a little bit smaller than otherwise. And where you want to set that trade-off depends on what you want and what you value. And if you look at the trend in Australia, and interestingly, the trend in every single developed country in the world over the last 15 years, except Iceland, for some strange reason, uh, every single country in the world has, a developed country, has increased the percentage of the economy that it spends on health through government. Uh, So what's happened over the last 15 years is that as countries have got richer, They've tended to spend the marginal dollar on health because health spending is often more effective through government than privately because uh, health is one of those areas where there's enormous information asymmetries. Uh, You probably don't really know what is the right treatment to get. You're very reliant on your doctor to tell you. Uh, If you have a fully privatized system, then you will often wind up with a doctor telling you you want a lot of things that maybe you don't really need. (laughs) Uh, And indeed, the, the country, of course, that most famously has an extremely privatized health system, namely America, spends roughly speaking, double what Australia spends on health and gets, if anything, worse outcomes. So what's happened, as I said, in Australia and across the world is governments are spending a greater proportion of GDP on health. And that means that if everything else has more or less grown in line with the economy, that the size of government has increased. And that's exactly what we've seen in Australia over the last decade, uh, is that government is now a little larger than it was essentially because we're spending more on health than we used to. And is government, as some have argued, a ratchet? That is, it only goes one way, it always increases? Or do we actually have examples of government floating up and down as a percentage of the economy? Well, even if you look at Australia's own history, we've seen it float up and down over time. Uh, It's indeed historically been slightly larger than it is at the moment, albeit not for very long. And uh, it's certainly been much smaller than it is at the moment uh, at various stages over the last two decades. So yes, it does go up and down. Although, of course, one of the biggest things that goes up and down is if the economy grows particularly fast and the government doesn't grow quite as fast, then the size of government as a percentage of the economy by definition falls. Philomena, can you say something about the size of government as a value choice in Europe? Um, In the Scandinavian countries, the size of government is regarded as acceptable when it is large because of the perceived benefits. Um, High taxes are paid, high benefits are evident. So you have a social welfare system, which many have regarded, particularly those on the centre-left, as the most admirable in the world. Um, It is worth paying high taxes in order to have excellent health facilities, to have a huge amount of investment into education, for example. And this is not just European Union, Scandinavian countries. Norway would be an example of this, where they also have, of course, a future fund for when their natural resources become more depleted. So there is a sense that a trade-off is acceptable Where there's less of an acceptance is when you've got different social models or different varieties of capitalism, as it's sometimes called. And that is in the southern European states, where there is less of a sense of acquiescence or consensus towards um, high government spending because of traditional opposition to uh, models of government, but also because there's less sense of adherence or even belonging to the state, the less of an identification with it compared to the northern neighbours. When it comes to membership of the European Union, John has mentioned the importance of tax and he's absolutely right. In the European Union, for instance, one 
0.4% of value-added tax, a type of GST, is applied so that it actually goes automatically into the European Union budget. This is then used for a number of policies, but one of them is a set of redistribution policies for aid for disadvantaged regions and disadvantaged groups, regardless of how much money is being put into the EU budget by those individual countries. Um, So, for instance, going back to the UK case, the UK is a net contributor, in other words, puts more money into the European Union than it receives. However, disadvantaged groups and indeed regions, such as parts of Wales, the north of England, for instance, parts of Scotland and most of Northern Ireland, receive a huge amount from the European Union redistribution budgets called the cohesion funds. So what you've got is this redistribution mechanism, which is very much based on a type of Scandinavian model of aid for less advantaged uh, regions, for example. So when we get to this issue that how, how much does the UK put into the European Union, the answer is, Well, it does put in more than it receives, but if it was to leave the European Union and it decides to adopt what's called the Norwegian approach, it would end up paying six billion euro per year, if uh, going on the size of Norway, so it could be even more, in order to not then participate in decisions just to be part of a single market, for instance, without those redistribution benefits. In other words, without the benefits to less advantaged social and regional groups. And should we think about this in the same terms we think about Australian federalism, where effectively through Mm -hmm. equalisation we try to minimise disadvantage in some states? I think it's it's legitimate to think about it that to some extent. And, And, of course, the way that that redistribution works in practice is that we pay quite a lot to Tasmania quite a lot to Northern Territory, a material amount to South and South Australia, and essentially everybody else subsidises them one way or another. And then, of course, we also have governments, uh, particularly a federal government, that provides money specifically to particular regions. And, of course, never is that more apparent than the middle of an election campaign, uh, because invariably those announcements are maximised during an election campaign, uh, invariably being announced in the seat that will benefit most from them. So, yes, we do have that kind of feature. I guess what's different is that the lion's share of that redistribution in Australia is done essentially to two specific governments, namely Tasmania and Northern Territory. And whilst we do have some of these regional development funds coming from the Commonwealth, it's less of a share of the Commonwealth's budget than it is in the European Union. And I think that's an interesting choice. The way that Australia has tended to work, at least over time, has been to say redistribution is about people. Governments owe obligations to the least advantaged people. And so most of the redistribution in Australia is done through welfare benefits, which are essentially universal. So you get paid the same unemployment benefit, age, pension, or whatever it might be, wherever you are living, and irrespective of the prosperity of your local community and how much tax your local community is paying. Uh, By and large, although we we have spent plenty of money over time uh, giving money to particular regions there's less of that than there is in the united uh, than in the european union and actually mm-hmm. there's good moral reasons for that we don't owe moral obligations to places we owe moral obligations to people uh, and so in australia we have plenty of regions and areas which have lower populations than they did uh, 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 80 years ago. And indeed, if you look at the history of regional development in Australia, Judith Bretz wrote a lovely piece uh, Mm -hmm. in the quarterly essay Mm -hmm. a little while back called Fair Share. 
we have a history of 115 years of Australian governments trying to make regions that are growing slowly to uh, grow more quickly from an economic perspective and 115 years of abject failure because usually the reason that those regions are growing more slowly is that economic forces mean that you can do things more efficiently or more productively elsewhere and so that's the reason that economic activity or people are moving away from them. So you're listening to the Policy Shop podcast and you can subscribe on iTunes or download us at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. Philomena, in an article recently, Boris Johnson said, and I quote, that Britain is seeing a slow and invisible process of legal colonisation as the EU infiltrates just about every area of public policy. Is this how we have to think about the essential opposition, not as a opposition per se to the scale of government, but whose government it is and accountability. Reluctant as I am to agree sometimes with um, Boris Johnson, (laughs) (laughs) I think he actually has got a point, but I probably wouldn't call it colonisation. It has been estimated that 80% of national legislation in European countries is actually coming from the European Union. All of these laws are made by the 28 countries The British were there. They opposed them or they amended them or they agreed to each of these pieces of legislation since they joined in 1973. So the colonisation is actually partly a self-colonisation. Definitely the European Union legislation by and large takes precedence over national legislation. So you simply have to change your national legislation. It is, however, legislation that the British have been involved in making, framing and reforming over years. And I think that point has to be made that the European Union is not a distant bureaucracy, even though it does its best to look like that sometimes. Um, But in fact, it is part of the decisions. The main decisions are made by the national ministers for finance, for social policy or whatever. And so it is definitely a huge enmeshing of national and European legislation. There's absolutely no doubt about it, which is why Brexit would be such a legal and legislative nightmare. Public policy is European far more than it is national. It reaches into just about every aspect of the national governance system, with the exception of aspects of defence and securities and some aspects of taxation, for example. Thanks, Philbin. And let's do the comparison with Australian regulation. John Daly, in the orange paper just released by the Grattan Institute, you note, and I quote, that size of government is also a function of how much government regulates lives and that as society becomes richer and more complex, some increase in regulation is inevitable. So is what we're seeing in Europe in fact part of the complexity of society rather than a distinctly European phenomenon? Complexity of society certainly got something to do with it. Uh, As we invent more technologies, as the specialisation with our community grows and therefore complexity of interaction grows, inevitably there's calls to regulate problems that we didn't have before or certainly problems that were not apparent before. But I think there is perhaps uh, an important distinction, or at least uh, uh, with Europe, and that is from the sounds of an outsider or from the viewpoint of an outside observer, some of the concern in Europe about Europe is that many of the real decisions, the decisions of the Council of Ministers or the decisions of the European Commission or so on, are taken in ways that are very non-transparent to the average voter or indeed to the average uh, 
keen observer from the media. And then these decisions then, as it were, appear at the point that they start to be implemented by local parliaments. I think that's a contrast to Australia where the regulation-making process, uh, the, the process of legislation itself is all inherently more transparent. And so there is perhaps less of a perception that there are these uh, rules appearing without any kind of involvement from the public. That said, we do have plenty of discussion in Australia about the nanny state. There is no question that our regulation today is much more risk averse than it used to be. And of course, that's often because when something goes wrong, uh, the first thing that there is public outcry for is to do something about it. And so the first thing that government does is precisely do something about it, pass legislation that one way or another they can at least claim will uh, reduce the risk of whatever it is that just happened happening again. So no question government has become more intrusive. No question that the Commonwealth statute book is a lot longer than it used to be. And No question that some of the time that sort of legislation indeed does reduce risks. No question, for example, that the number of people dying on Australia's roads, much lower than it used to be. The number of people that get killed at work, much lower than it used to be. But there is a cost, and that cost is the increasing intrusion of government into our lives. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Phil, I mean, how is this going to play out? When you think about Brexit over the next few weeks, what are you expecting the debate to be like and are you willing to take a punt on the outcome? Um, Well, I think that what John has just said about the apparent non-transparent decision-making of the European Union is actually one of the themes that's going to play out increasingly, even over the next few days. Um, The EU is actually going through a number of crises, a crisis relating to refugees and migration, um, the ongoing crisis of the Eurozone, massive problems with youth unemployment, for example, um, huge problems in relations with both Ukraine and Russia. So there are quite a lot of challenges there. And then underlying all of this, you have the legitimacy crisis of the European Union, where its narrative and its norms and its values do not have resonance with many of its constituent states, including with the UK. So I think that um, what John has said actually does have validity in when it's actually applied to the European Union. It's over complex, it is over bureaucratic in the way it at least it appears, and it does appear to be secretive, no matter how well-meaning many of the European Union officials may be. So that is one of the contexts. The context, the main context is this idea of sovereignty, however, British identity, we want to make British great again, we want to put the great back into Great Britain. Um, that linked with the immigration and refugee debate and with the perception of economic losses um, really is, uh, these are the issues that are playing out over the next few days. The opinion polls are saying that the Leave campaign is going to be successful, partly because it has got charismatic leaders like Boris Johnson, who have a certain appeal, regardless of whether how recourse to the facts is used. He has appeal. He makes it sound exciting interesting and fascinating to have that sense of being British again in a way that is perceived by many in the UK and particularly in England as having been lost 
Unfortunately, I would see Brexit, the British exit from the European Union as being a very valid um, outcome. I won't take a punt on the figures. It could be close, but it could be as much as four or five percent, according to the latest polls over the last few days. I think this would be difficult for the UK. And I also think that the UK should stay in the European Union because I think it's good for the European Union as well. John, will there be federal implications in Australia for a Brexit on the 23rd of June? Well, we're reliably informed by our media that uh, our Treasury has been busy wargaming this. I think the reality is there'll be a short-term impact that we're already seeing playing out on world markets. Uh, Obviously, it will um, cause various economic relations to change, but I think overall the impact on Australia will be pretty small. Subject to what are the big flow-on impacts for Europe? So I think that the immediate impact will be pretty small. If Brexit is the the first domino that then leads to a radical reshaping of Europe in which we see the rise of protectionist forces, the rise of anti-immigration forces, uh, the rise of extremist politics, then, of course, the implications of that washing across a large chunk of the developed world for Australia would be huge. But it's not going to be at all obvious on the 23rd of June assuming that there is a Brexit, uh, that that will be the long-term outcome. It may well be that this is yet another thing that the European Union adjusts to as it has adjusted to so many changes in the past. So economics and sovereignty playing out in complex political games. It's a fascinating story. My thanks to our wonderful guest today, Philomena Murray from the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Thank you. And John Daly, the CEO of the Grattan Institute. Thank you very much. Look forward to joining you on our next episode of The Policy Shop. I'm Glyn Davis. See you then. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour and research by Ellie MacDonald. You can find this podcast and read more on this topic at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. And remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016.